You're listening to Talking Buildings, the podcast related to all things about the built environment. Here is your host, Paul Angus. Today on Talking Buildings, we're extremely lucky enough to be recording in such an awesome location. We're at the fantastic Green Building Council Australia offices overlooking Piermont in sunny Sydney. Ian Varnierden has joined us today as the co-pilot chair. And Ian has been working in sustainability in the built environment for over eight years now and has been with Northrop Consulting Engineers for three and a half years. He's no stranger to Sibsi. Ian has been the Young Engineers Network member since 2012, been engaged in both the New South Wales chapter and Young Engineers Network committees since 2013. He's attended and made an impact at the Global Yen Conference in Hong Kong in 2015 and Manchester in UK in 2016. And until recently, he was the Sibsi ANZ Region Chair, representing young engineers' interests to the National Committee. Welcome to the show, Ian, and thanks for taking the time this morning. Always happy to sit down with some of the champions of our industry. Speaking of which, our guest today is Romley Majew. Romley's passionate about creating sustainable buildings, communities and cities. Since 2006, she's led the Green Building Council of Australia and built a global reputation as an influential advocate and change agent, one that's seen her recently announced a change in roles with her appointment as CEO of Infrastructure Australia. As possibly the busiest person in the built environment sector, Romla's also a member of the federal government's City Reference Group, former vice president and member of the executive committee of ASBEC, independent chair of the Kurawong State Park Advisory Committee, a member of the Sydney Olympic Park Authority and Chief Executive Women's Board, and president of the Bilgoa Surf Life Saving Club. Thank you for taking the time out to join us today, Romley, and welcome to Sibsi Australia New Zealand's podcast, Talking Buildings. Thank you. I'm looking forward to having a chat. Awesome. So before we begin, I'd just like to start by congratulating you on being awarded the Order of Australia last weekend on Australia Day. Well done. Woohoo. What a massive achievement. And not only to you and your family, but also to the GPCA and your work colleagues who've all supported you on this fantastic journey. Perhaps we can kick off by rewinding the tape a little and just recap on how it all began and maybe elaborate if it was always part of the plan. So firstly, I'd say it wasn't part of the plan. And so <laughs> I was incredibly honoured and humbled when I was uh, given the award of an AO. But... I think being in my role very much was probably part of the plan, but I came in a really weird way. So when I was an undergraduate, I did a, a thesis on um, a cost-benefit analysis of a land care project out mm-hmm. at Narromine. So that's where my interest in environment um, and sustainability really came into fore. I then uh, had a few jobs and then ended up at the Property Council as the Executive Director for the ACT. Okay. Um, around 2002 and at the same time I was appointed Executive Director of Sustainability and if you remember Green Building Council of Australia was established in 2002 Mm -hmm. so I was pretty much immediately seconded across to be their advocate uh, in in Canberra Uh, and so was with the Green Building Council from its early days of establishment Uh, and being involved in that in the early days really meant that I built a strong um, relationship with the Green Building Council so when Maria went back to uh, Lynn Lease, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I was uh, offered the position uh, of acting CEO and then became CEO. Luckily, in 2005, I'd been working at the GBCA for a year, writing the um, publication, The Dollars and Cents of Green Buildings. Yeah. So I think if you look at my career and my passion around sustainability, I, I do say that I fell into the role, mm-hmm. but uh, others say um, I was probably supported by many around me. So kind of where do you think that passion for sustainability came from? What was the incentive to do your thesis in um, that area? 
I, one of three girls, and uh, we were raised by parents who had a very open view around politics and justice and social justice, and our, our dinner table conversations were fiery, feisty, and right. always interesting. And um, they raised us to ensure that we had an opinion. Uh, and I think the, my interest in, in the environment probably came back to when I was in year 12, my um, artwork, I did 300 art, was actually on a um, demonstration on coal or something. I can't remember, but it was definitely an environmental bent mm-hmm. that my, my um, major work uh, then and you know mum would take us on rallies and demonstrations on women's rights and <laughs> other environmental issues so I, you know I think it came at a young stage uh, interestingly enough when it came to land care funnily enough years later when we were living on the land Philip Toyne who was one of the founders and creators of land care actually lived on a property behind us and he was the one when I was at the property council who uh, really supported and suggested that I um, move into my passion, which was sustainability. And that's where I moved into first as a consultant to the Green Building Council and then as CEO. It's that transition between like art to science to engineering and the built environment. Yeah. So fascinating. Mm, definitely. So as Chief Executive of the Green Building Council since 2006, you've been instrumental in making such a transformational change within the built environment. But in this time, what would you consider has been the biggest challenge and what has been the most significant achievement? The biggest challenge, I think, would have to be um, the political uh, back and forth on what governments are, you know, when it comes to carbon, uh, environmental issues, energy efficiency, climate change, we can keep going on. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the last 10 years, it's just been this constant back and forth and back and forth and there's been no consistency around environmental policy. But at the same time, I would say under, under that, if you then look at the capital cities in the state government and some, some of the um, agencies within the federal government, mm-hmm. there has been great leadership. But I think the strength of our industry has come from this inability by government to have a position and it's held, mm-hmm. has meant that the industry has then jumped in and taken the leadership position. Mm-hmm. And they've gone, there's a vacuum there yeah. of leadership. So you know what? We're going to grab that vacuum. Mm-hmm. So then coming back to what has been the most significant achievement, there mm-hmm. are so many, there, there really are so many, but I think the point is, the most significant is we are the most collaborative industry uh, globally yeah. um, in this area, and that is recognised by GRES, which is the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark, and Australia has led that for the last eight years. Mm-hmm. And I think that the achievement is our industry, you know what, has just got on and done it. Uh-huh. We work really well together, yeah. and it's been a real joy to work with them. Yeah. Brilliant. So what's been your most memorable experience as CEO and why? Well, this is interesting. I have really had a number of memorable experiences and it, I, I have said a number of times this would have been one of the best jobs, I think, in Australia mm-hmm. because you're looking at the change in our city's uh, shape and form. Um, I suppose the first one would be, and it probably sticks in my mind, is when I became the CEO, the first certification I had as mm-hmm. CEO. I did go to the opening of Brindabella, 8 Brindabella Park, which was the first Green Star building. Yeah. But for me, the first one was RAF Richmond, mm-hmm. uh, which was the an Air Force, um, new Air Force building out at RAF Richmond. And the reason it was so special is it had a design as built and interiors rating. So mm-hmm. it had the trifecta, first 
projects in Australia to have the trifecta. Uh-huh. It was my first building that I was giving, making a presentation to, and at the time it was to the Minister um, for Defence, who yeah. is now the CEO of the um, War Memorial. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really exciting because, apart from the fact that no one can see it because it's in a secure site, um, the industry in those early days, there was more closed doors than open doors. Mm-hmm. And Defence just said, we're going to do this and this is how we're going to do it and kind of dragged industry along with them and took them on a journey. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was a wonderful project to be there and to give them their certificates. Uh-huh. Awesome, that's grand. So with that collaboration, it sounds like over the last decade we've moved from quite a driven element where the, the end client, Defence, says you do this mm. to, to a much more collaborative approach, which is what you've, uh, which what you talked about as one of the strengths of the industry. Um, with industry at the moment, the top end is really strongly focused on sustainability, um, but existing buildings are responsible for a massive chunk of Australia's emissions. And how do we motivate those owners of lower performing buildings in the B and C grades to, uh, to act on sustainability? I think it's going to have to be carrot and stick because we've been very successful when it comes to um, the listed property trusts, as you've said, and it's in the top end. I would be so bolshy to say that we've been more than successful. It's not just the top end because 38% of office space now in Australia is certified to Grand Star. Uh, but you, you, when it comes to office, retail and industrial, um, the, you're right. The major players, this is just business as usual. So the reason it needs to be carrot and stick is... of greenhouse gas emissions comes from the built environment. Of that, 10% comes from um, non-residential and 13% from residential. So if we look at the non-residential, which is 10%, I think it needs things like um, changes to the National Construction Code, and we've been working as an industry incredibly closely with the um, Australian Building Codes Board, um, which is, so that's part of the carrot, but that only picks up a new build. The other part that I think has been incredibly successful is the commercial buildings disclosure. So that's for sale or lease of, mm-hmm. of, of existing office over a thousand square metres okay. and that requires that you disclose your neighbour's rating. Um, you know, if you dropped it to 500 square metres, you're going to capture more of that mid-tier mm-hmm. office market. Yeah. And I think that there is a requirement because all of a sudden if, if they have to disclose, then they're going to go... Well, if my if I've got a zero neighbours rating and the building next door has a five star neighbours rating, and I want to attract people to my building, mm-hmm. there will be a change in the market. It's a forced change, but there will be a change. Mm-hmm. So that then ensures that we need to ensure we have case studies. And Clean Energy Finance Corporation has done a fantastic job on a hundred different case studies around existing buildings, um, and we need to ensure that there's education as well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's a lot happening in that space, and the Green Building Council's been working with the mid tier working group. Uh, so watch this space. But yeah. I really do think with that that mid-tier market, it really will be carrot and stick. And that little bit of competitive nature in there helps as well. And Australia is incredibly competitive, let me tell you. And the market also, I think it's a good point. I think the market's become quite discerning. If we look at 10 years ago, they would have just gone location, location, location. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to move there. Whereas now with energy prices being as high as they are, mm-hmm. I think the market now, and, and also if we look at flexible workplaces and the way that our workspaces have changed, yeah. the market has actually become quite cluey to go, why would I move into that brown, what we would consider a brown building, when I can move into the green building next door and my operating costs are significantly reduced? Mm-hmm. So. I think there'll be a push from the market as well. So what would be the one big piece of advice you'd give to a sustainability or services engineer working on a Green Star project? And it can be something 
that they shouldn't be doing? I think the first thing is we have learnt is start early if all projects should be Green Star. If they're not, and, and it's uh, other rating tools, and we support a, many, a number of other rating tools, you need to incorporate the principles of that rating tool right from the beginning of the project. What we find is if you try and add it in, it, it, you won't have any success, and it'll be quite expensive and frustrating as well. The other thing is, like, own it. Mm-hmm. There's a really important uh, – where we see young sustainability executives who've gone really, really well, they do a number of things. One, they prosecute the importance of sustainability at the beginning of the project. Yeah. And we know that there's a number of projects who go, not interested, too costly, don't have the time, mm-hmm. whatever. Yep. It's where those young executives have gone, we'll work really collaboratively with the Green Building Council to make this a really easy process with, with you and for you, that we've had some great successes. So – Feel confident about intervening, about consistently saying you need to use some sort of framework because where there have been terrible failures is when projects have said we're going to design to Green Star and we know for a fact mm-hmm. it's not a Green Star building. Um, we've done, we've then gone in and done a Green Star rating and they're lucky to get 20 points. So it's, it really is just feel confident and use the Green Building Council. That's what our team are here for mm-hmm. and we're here to actually help you. We can come into any of those projects meetings and PCGs and, and help you in that in that process so you're not alone. So you use the resources available to you and drive home that That's sustainability exactly right. message. And the other thing is many of the industry associations like SIBSI and others mm-hmm. are there to help you as well. So of it's course, not just yeah. the Green Building Council. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all members of the um, of ASBEC, the Australian Sustainable Built Environment, and all of us are champions of the of sustainability in the built environment. So there's lots of places for you to get support from. Mm-hmm. So what do you reckon, um, what's been the biggest game changer within the building service industry and why? I think there's been a number. I think the industry has seen a sophistication uh, in how our buildings are designed and constructed Mm -hmm. and operated. Um, And when you look at uh, the fact that many of our buildings now aren't using traditional air conditioning Mm -hmm. or uh, are using distributed energy, um, they're doing things like getting their heat and cool their water from the harbour, we're using black water treatment. I think there's great opportunities to use sustainability as a lever to use innovation in the built environment. The others is monitoring um, the performance of buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, and it really is around energy and water. I think you can have a lot of fun yeah. in the opportunities that are around, uh-huh. but then funnily enough, a lot of those innovations are actually old innovations that have been used in old buildings for years and years and years. Like. Yeah. Crossflow ventilation, um, you know, wind turbines. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of things. So I think there's great opportunities in building services to have some fun with sustainability. Mm-hmm. But there are so many case studies of how buildings are, are managed and run now. Mm-hmm. That if we considered 10 years ago, yeah. you know, we would have looked at things like chilled boom and go, oh, it'll never work, it'll never happen. <laughs> and now it's kind of just like, oh, yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. And I, I really think the, the, the biggest one is that buildings and communities are becoming their own little energy centres. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean for building services? Uh, and the reliance on the grid uh, and the changing energy market is an opportunity, but that also challenges around how building services are going to respond to that. Awesome. Alrighty. Okay, we're going to be back in a minute um, with more probing questions and further insights. Um, but now it's time for a little fun, Romley. And we're going to change the dynamics of this session and we're going to do some quick fire questions. 
It's Rapid Fire Roundup on Talking Buildings. Uh, how would you describe yourself in five words or less? I'll just do the five words. I'd say, um, firstly, I'd say energetic, uh, and that's how others have described me. Yep. Visionary, um, passionate, empathetic, and um, very, very focused. What's your favourite memory or funniest moment from your childhood? It would be my first memory, mm-hmm. uh, and that would be in my cot, and my incredibly successful older sister was hiding now, was hiding behind the door. So I would have been two, and she would have been um, eight, uh-huh. and she scared the bejesus <laughs> out of my mother as she walked through that door. <laughs> <laughs> What's the biggest regret of your career? As a female, I would say I wish I had been bolshy earlier on in my career around social injustice and, th- and that I'd called out where there'd been bad behaviour. Uh, now I feel quite confident to be bolshy, mm-hmm. but I wish I'd done that early on. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been mistaken for somebody else and played along with it? Uh, no. No, I, um, <laughs> I, am, I don't know whether it, you'd say uh, it's, I, I, am, I am unique, yeah. um, but no, I haven't been uh, mistaken for somebody else. Has there been an event or moment that has fundamentally changed your life? There's been a number of events and moments that have um, significantly changed my life. Uh, And I think uh, part of it has shaped me today. So uh, I've dealt with um, some tragic deaths, both by my best friend when I was 19 uh, and the passing of both my brother-in-law and my mother to cancer and Mm -hmm. my mother-in-law. And also when we lived on the property at Lake George, we had a 400-acre property. We uh, we lived in the drought for eight years. And then we, just as we came off the back of the drought, we had a bushfire. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also as a surf life, Lifesaver. I've been a surf lifesaver for 25 years. Uh, we've uh, our patrol and as many other surf lifesavers would experience experience a number of different challenging uh, situations on the on the beach, um, from potential drownings to dislocations to other difficult and sad um, each situations. And I think all of those experiences have uh, shaped me. What was the first ever record you bought? I was thinking about this and I would say either the Beatles or ABBA, but if my timing is right, it would have to have been the Beatles. Mm -hmm. But half the people listening to this podcast probably won't know who they are. (laughs) I was going to say it's a bit presumptuous that you bought a record as your first music, but it may have been a cassette. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It was definitely a record. Uh, what's your favourite karaoke song and why? Uh, I don't have a favourite karaoke song. I, uh, I, lo- I have three teenage kids and uh, we listen to all the latest hip-hop and pop and rock. Uh, so I just love music, all music from classical to triple J to rock and roll. So you're listening to the Hottest 100 on the weekend? Oh, yes. I've even got a Hottest 100 t-shirt. Oh. <laughs> Who would play you in a movie of your life? This was quite easy. My daughter, mm-hmm. uh, many, even though she's a lot taller than I am, I'm 5'3", she's 5'8". Uh, she's uh, 17 and everyone says she is me. Really? She's just a taller version of me. Has <laughs> she got aspirations to go into acting? Or? Uh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, if you were marooned on a desert island, what would be the one thing you couldn't live without and this, why? This was really easy. Uh, I'm notorious for taking photos so if you watch the Green Building Council Instagram page or follow me on Twitter you would see I'm constantly taking photos of buildings and our cities and I also take many many photos of family friends and um, and situations I also run the social media for the surf club so really I think it would be my photos and access to the internet and access to- <laughs> well, I could I'm actually power. have from the old days I actually could have my old photo albums oh, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That was awesome. Thanks very much. 
In Australia, less than 15% of engineers involved in the property industry are women. Yet in sustainability circles, the gender gap is far less of an issue. So why do you think that is? And what lessons do the engineering professions need to learn? I think uh, what happened is when I first started at the Green Building Council, or in property actually, so I've been in property for 17 years, being mm-hmm. at the property council before then, I was one of n- few women in the early days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, you know, moved into sustainability. And so why was it that there's a number of women in sustainability, but we're not seeing the same numbers in uh, engineering, for instance? Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason is uh, coming back to uh, our industry, if you think about gender diversity, gender diversity would be considered a sustainability issue. Mm-hmm. And and many of our listed property trusts have to um, disclose their gender diversity and their gender targets and, and, and their gender policies. Yeah. And so I think the reason why we have so many women uh, in our sector is firstly because, A, it would probably attracted it to them. Um, it was their way of coming into property. It would have been in, in, in a, and a lot of them are engineers and an architects, female engineers and architects. Mm-hmm. The other thing that has been incredibly successful and is a great lesson for engineering mm-hmm. is the Property Council, a number of years ago created male champions of change property and it has a raft of initiatives in it from top down so the 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 board itself is all the ceos of the of the major property companies in australia Mm -hmm. but it's got very effective initiatives in it like 500 women in property networking mentoring uh, women in schools program in property um, the, but the other key things for me, I'm a working mum of three kids and I'm also the carer of my father. Mm-hmm. The key for women is flexibility, yep. creating that flexible environment, mm-hmm. um, having role models, okay. having mentors. I have mm-hmm. been incredibly lucky over my working career to have a number of mentors, mostly interesting enough male mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is it's got to be leadership from the top down. So in all the engineering firms, they need to take a really bold position on gender diversity, put a quota in place mm-hmm. and then ensure that it happens. Yeah. And, um, and really, you know, if 50% of our population are women, you don't want to. You don't want to have a, no disrespect, but mm-hmm. diversity is great. Yeah. You not. You don't just want diversity of um, gender. You also want diversity of ethnicity. Yeah. But ensuring that that happens. Of course. Yeah. Is there also an element of that broader impact that you can bring in sustainability from a workplace wellness and sustainability perspective? That women can bring. Yeah. Yeah. I think women bring. Um, I think men have their strengths and women have their strengths, and I think women bring in a style around sustainability that's empathetic um, and that they uh, can showcase. Like I, I think of people like Sam Moston, Amanda Steele, Davina Rooney, uh, Nina James. I can continue to go on. There are so many wonderful women in sustainability. Mm-hmm. Siobhan Twohill, that take people on a journey, mm-hmm. bring people with them, collaborate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the, the style of females, mm, yeah. that, that that's why they've been such fabulously strong leaders in sustainability. Uh-huh. You did talk earlier about that strength of collaboration in our industry, and that's something that you have obviously played a massive role in, in the sustainability movement. Um, and your role driving those sustainability, uh, kind of making more sustainable buildings. Do you have any big tips that you would give to people generally and potentially specifically women about yes. how to enable that to advance them? I um, I have been incredibly lucky, as I said, that I had mentors, but then someone said to me, that wasn't luck, Rom, that was your hard work and you were the one who actually went and sought the mentors. Mm. So then that makes me reflect on what women um, could be doing, um, whether you're ambitious or not. 
I think what men do really, really well is they network really well. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, they lean they, they do they lean in really well. Like if you think about the property council and the green building council, mm-hmm. we'll put a request for both committee members or a request for speakers out. Yeah. 90% of them are men. Okay. So women do carry the imposter syndrome and they have to lean in. They have to put their name forwards for committees. They have to put their name forwards for speaking at conferences. Um, they need to network and they need to learn how they network. And if they don't, they need to um, be taught. Mm-hmm. Um, there are wonderful opportunities for women out there. And I look at, you know, many people have said, you know, what do you think led to the, your success and the opportunities you've got? such as being uh, the incoming CEO of Infrastructure Australia. And that's because I have turned a interest, which is I just love talking to people, <laughs> uh, aka networking, mm-hmm. but I've turned an interest, which is networking, yeah. into um, an opportunity. Uh-huh. And so I have used that to, um, to help strengthen my career. And I have not done that in an inauthentic way. Mm-hmm. I'm very authentic when I do my networking. Yeah. But... For women, if you just sit back and are quiet, are quiet, the opportunities are not going to come your way. You mm-hmm. really, really do need to lean in and participate. Mm. So it's almost a mix of leaning forward, getting involved, networking, but then also seeking out those mentors and champions within industry to support you. It is. And what has always amazed me is I have emailed people and asked for their advice thinking, you know, one in five might accept a coffee or a phone call. Yeah. And it's more like five in five. All right. Well, we'll, we'll go, yep, happy to have a chat, happy to help you, happy to yeah. provide advice. Uh-huh. Got to put yourself out there. That's it. <laughs> uh, so for the benefit of young engineers, uh, what would be your advice to advocate for sustainability and be heard? Um, I guess you've touched on that just then. I have. I think... Um, if you're a young sustainability um, executive and, and you're passionate about advocating, I think of people in our industry that have been really successful at this. And that is, it's very evidence-based. They know the facts. They know the trends coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, they speak out. Joe Carton, who used to work at the Green Building Council and now works at Built, has and was and actually was the property council young um, ex- property executive of the year two years ago. Yeah, has never relents from his passion on sustainability. Mm-hmm. Like he may be working as a professional in the built environment, yeah. but everyone knows he's completely passionate. But he does it in a really balanced and transformative way, uh-huh. and that's taking people on a journey, making sure they know where they can get the information. And as we've talked about before, there is a raft of information and help out there. And Joe has done it in a really delightful way, and it really is about bringing people on a journey and and taking the myth out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, people have this myth about green and sustainability and, you know, making it fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know Joe really well. I'm working on uh, Four Panama Square. Yeah. Have and I described him correctly? Totally, yeah, to a T, yeah. He's, yeah. A, he's, he's an American yeah. younger version of me yeah. in yeah, that yeah. he's incredibly energetic. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he's he's transformational in how he's taken many people on a journey, including yeah, yeah. me. Yeah, he certainly makes his presence felt when he's in the room, that's, that's for sure. That's exactly right. <laughs> I, I've always found that, that keeping on top of the trend is 
the the place to be in sustainability because it always keeps your job interesting. You're always doing something different. And I, I always like to say to my colleagues that if I'm doing the same thing I'm doing now, five years from now, I've not done my job properly. And I think uh, an important thing, and we haven't um, touched on this around trends, social media is your friend and social media is definitely your friend as a young executive and as a female. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I use all forms of social media. Yeah. But it helps you keep across those trends. Mm-hmm. Twitter... My gosh, you you follow the right people and uh, you become invaluable to both your organisation and whatever committee you're, you're sitting on. Yeah. And we now present to boards and executives regularly because they say we can't keep on top of the trends. Mm-hmm. Um, and realistically, the only way we keep on top of the trends is through social media mm-hmm. because, you know, someone's putting a case study up about their building. Um, there's been an interesting article that would have come from overseas somewhere. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree. I, I think our industry is really exciting. There's so much happening. We're moving incredibly quickly. But it's your responsibility as an executive in our industry to be on top of the trends. And I'll give you a classic example. Mm-hmm. Green Star changed a number of years ago significantly. And I'm appalled when young executives go, oh, this is what Greenstar does. And we're like, yeah, no, it doesn't. We mm-hmm. changed that like six years ago. And I actually, we were, we're calling them out in front of their bosses. Mm-hmm. And it shows that they're behind yeah. in what's happening. Mm-hmm. So it's really important you read your industry newsletters like SIBSI, yep. uh-huh. Green Building Council, Property Council, course, because yeah. all the industry associations yeah. – are including all those trends in their newsletters yeah. and in their social media feeds. Mm-hmm. So you have to stay on top of those trends. Yeah. Otherwise, you just get left behind. You exactly. will be. You, yeah. The opportunities won't be presented to you. That's yeah. right, yeah. You touched upon um, social media there. What about um, like thought leadership articles and doing research? Would you encourage young engineers and obviously women as well, but anyone to get involved in the, that sort of aspect? Absolutely. Yeah. This is where social media is your friend, as I've said. Mm-hmm. Um, we love at the Green Building Council, including any articles from any of our members, mm-hmm. which we include in our newsletter, yeah. that will then be picked up across all our mediums of social media. Yeah. LinkedIn is mm-hmm. probably one of the most important tools yeah. that you could use as a young executive. And people go, oh, LinkedIn's just for recruitment. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. If I'm having a meeting with someone, mm-hmm. I looked up their LinkedIn profile. Yep. I don't want to see who I'm meeting, what their experience is, where they've come from. Uh-huh. So, and, and also, you can see on LinkedIn if they've promoted or posted posted any articles yeah um and you can also just have an opinion like i repost a lot of articles okay but if they're interesting um that's my way of showing that i'm interested in something and i'm Mm -hmm. reposting but i I agree with you i think it's a great opportunity and there are so many courses that can teach you very quickly how to be effective on social media yeah for sure yeah we've got a magazine um, engineering buildings so if anyone's out there it's listening yeah we'd be more than welcome for any articles for sure yeah so yeah, you've you've said that you're you do a lot of this social media element. Is that something that you learnt, or is it just something you are innately good at, given your communication skills? Uh, well, it was interesting <laughs> when Twitter first started, or the tweets. Um, I actually, under my own name, uh, Ben Thomas, one of our former staff who's now at GPT, was actually me. So really? I, because I had no idea how to use Twitter. <laughs> um, then Ben left to work with the city of Sydney at the time and he goes, you're really on your own now, Rom. You're going to have to learn how to use um, uh, Twitter. And I just forced myself to learn and I love, I mean, I love it. I love the conversations and the opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I would say is I'm blessed because I have three teenage kids, as I've said, who are all across all forms of social media. So I didn't really need to be taught how to use um, Instagram and Facebook because, you know, they taught me um, and hashtags. And with LinkedIn, 
it's just through trial and error. But I will say on social media, I have then subsequently done and attended workshops and lunches. You know, when people say we're doing a two-hour lunch, ANZ did a great one on social media a number of years ago, yeah. Social Media for Women. Okay. Really worthwhile and beneficial because uh-huh. I realised that I wasn't maximising the potential of social media. Uh-huh. So if you think you're good, you probably are, but you could probably be better. Yeah. And I think uh, attending any form of training on social media will make you more effective. Alrighty. So already it's been a really hot summer and we're only part way through. Um, so we're hearing much in the media about the urgency to reduce carbon emissions. And that's a view that is not universally accepted by our politicians and business leaders. So are you positive about the future? And if so, why? I am positive about the future. I'm just going to dispute one element that you said in, in that, in oh. that I think the business leaders, mm-hmm. I think there's, it's a minority of business leaders who aren't mm-hmm. supportive. I think the business leaders are incredibly supportive of change and yeah. are really looking for a climate policy, especially around carbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... I've yet to come across one who's not. Um, Many of that may be stakeholder-led, investor-led, requirements through reporting and assurance. But uh, now, if that was five years ago, I probably would have agreed with you and said that there was apathy Mm -hmm. within um, politicians and business leaders. Not anymore. The reason why I'm very positive about the future is I think the business leaders are very clear. Mm -hmm. I think they are leading. And the other thing is I think history shows that when there have been... Um, issues uh, worldwide and globally um, that human humanity have been able to pull together on that wicked issue and, and resolve it mm-hmm. and when you look at um, you know the ozone layer yeah. um, and we've had other issues around water scarcity or quality of water we have the know-how we have the technology we have the innovation yeah and um, we and we do, we have the ability today to solve this uh-huh. so I think it will it will get to a tipping point, yeah. uh, which we all know it's coming, and governments will, will they'll be forced to. And, and it's already happening. They're mm-hmm. being voted out. Yeah. So if they don't have a position on it, they won't be in parliament. And uh-huh. so I think the tipping point is near, and, and I do think we have the ability to ensure that we will have a, uh, a better world in the future. It's almost like there's a motivation for business to do stuff due to the inaction of government. There is motivation and there's other things as well. When you think of the extreme weather events that we're having in Australia, there's motivation by the banks and insurance companies mm-hmm. to to seek change. Yeah. Um, and that has a trickle-down effect. Well, it's not a trickle-down effect. It's a very big effect um, in, in ensuring change. And the other thing now is um, with TCFD, which is the Task Force on Climate-Related um, Financial Disclosure, you have to disclose your, cl- oh, yeah. your climate risks. Yeah. So it's like, government, get on board because this is going to happen. It's not going to go away. Uh, everyone is looking for leadership. What a great opportunity. Be yeah. a leader. Yeah. And do you see Australia leading the market? I think you touched upon it at the very start there, didn't you? I think yeah. uh, in pre- definitely in property and construction, Australia is leading globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting. We are asked why that's the case. I think very much in the EU, the governments really lead, mm-hmm. whereas really don't you want business to lead because then we'll have a faster take-up and, uh, and we'll take communities with us. And in Australia, we have an incredibly collaborative industry uh, and, and also very competitive industry. Industry. Yeah, and I think those two things together have uh-huh. show that we have an ability uh, to for other industries to learn from us. Yeah, I guess going back to your earliest uh, statement about the carrot and stick approach, it's uh, it's almost as if the recognition of being a forward thinker and a fast mover is that carrot. 
and the government's trailing behind with a stick at the bottom end of the market. They are now, but interestingly in the early days of when the Green Building Council was established in 2002, we were created by government and industry, so New mm. South Wales and Victorian government and Department of Defence. And also it was because government in the early days mandated Green Star and Neighbours. Mm-hmm. And the reason many of our tools were created, like healthcare and education, was because of government. So I have faith that we will get back to uh, governments being leaders in this era. And as I have said previously, many of our states and territories are leading, mm. as are a number of capital cities. Uh, I could say nearly all the capital cities and the work they do is really exciting. And I do believe that there are elements within the federal government, um, not the politicians mm-hmm. maybe, but there are definitely elements within the federal government that are leading. And we work very closely with those departments and, and I think we've been quite effective in the collaboration that's happened in that area. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask, um, what's the future for Green Building Council Australia? Easy. So we released our strategic plan uh, last year and I, I, it's just it's fantastic and I think it really puts us on a path for the next generation. So it's focusing on carbon. Yep. Uh, it's focusing on homes. Mm-hmm. If, if 13% of greenhouse gas emissions come from the residential market, mm-hmm. it's really important that we create a home standard. Yep. The other area that we believe there are great opportunities is social infrastructure. Okay. So both schools, hospitals, railway stations, um, green space, green infrastructure. You know, social infrastructure is quite broad, but I think there's a great opportunity there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really think it... it the success of that will be around collaboration and, and nearly all the initiatives we have, mm-hmm. we're, we're doing it in collaboration with the industry. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really do think carbon uh, is here to stay. It's not going to go away. Uh-huh. And looking at what our buildings will be like in 2030 when they have to be um, net zero, yeah. it's coming. And if you're not net zero, then your value of your assets is not going to be great. On that note, so what a fantastic session. Ian, I hope you've enjoyed being co-pilot and taking part, asking some really interesting and probing questions. Thank you for joining us. And Romley, thank you so much for joining us. It's been brilliant. It really has been a pleasure talking with you today and um, providing some fantastic insights and key takeaways for our listeners. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you both very much. Have a great day. I'm Paul Angus. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Talking Buildings. You've been listening to Talking Buildings. A Sipsi Australia and New Zealand production. You can download previous episodes or subscribe to future ones by searching Sipsi Talking Buildings. That's C I B S E on your favourite podcast app. <laughs>